You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, everybody, check out the Break the Bell podcast, where we believe your voice is your most powerful weapon. For a weekly dose of our take on what's going on in the world mixed with a side of history, find us wherever podcasts are found or on social media handle at Break the Bell Pod. And most importantly, never stop talking. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. So it's been rather funny lately. I've been starting the show with a bit of a reminder to uh, to old listeners, but also a way to go ahead and get new people coming on because our downloads tripled in the month of November, which was just absolutely insane. Thank you so much. But for new and old listeners alike, I want to go ahead and thank you for tuning into On The Run. In case you didn't know, and this is why I've been kind of starting every show with the last couple of weeks, in case you didn't know, uh, this was supposed to be a travel show, but... Uh, I decided to go ahead and launch it in March of 2020, which was probably not the best time for traveling anywhere. I was supposed to go to New York with my girlfriend to hang out with some friends of ours. We were going to go hit up Coney Island, Midtown Comics, you know, all the places I want to see. And that got canceled. Then we were going to go travel to a few other places, and that got all canceled. canceled. And uh, luckily, uh, a lot of you who were traveling also got, you know, your, your plans changed. So with that, the show had to change, and it went from traveling to physical locations far away, some big, some small, some new, some old, and it took a transition, and we began to really look at the the, tra- the great journey, the greatest journey, if I may say, the journey that is life, and understanding where we travel throughout the many stages and seasons of life. Um, this year has been something somewhat of a challenge for many of us many of you especially those who write to the show and you you know you ask about whether or not um their their opportunities to go ahead and jump on for different projects at the we are libertarians network and everything else i want to let you know i read every email i read every uh message i can't get to everything but i i do see them and uh this is this is a time where a lot of us have had to really you know dig down deep, whether it's been through health, whether it's been through loss of work, whether it's just been through many of the challenges that you probably didn't expect as we were entering the Roaring Twenties, they're here. And uh, one of you actually sent me a message. You wanted an episode about what it is like to dig deep and really face giant odds and challenges right in front of you. And uh, I think this is good timing. There have been a lot of questions about, you know, mental health, men's mental health. And why Why is it men's mental health? Because that's something that I feel a lot of people are willing to talk about now. And I mean, I just went ahead and Googled it, men's mental health pandemic. All these articles are from the last couple of weeks to a few months. Uh, what is the cost of the pandemic to men's mental health? Uh, men feeling more stressed, isolated as coronavirus pandemic continues. Why are men so negatively impacted by depression? GQ even published black men's mental health is the next pandemic. Either way, uh, this has been this has been a challenge, you know, for for people dealing with health issues. It was a physical challenge for many of us. It was a spiritual challenge for many of us. It was a mental challenge or a combination of all three. But what this is, nonetheless, is this is a challenge. And you know, a quick look through history shows us that when times get tough, we have an option. When you look at the burning house, there are two types of people: those who run away from it and those who run towards it. Today to talk about, you know, building that mental resilience, facing that, understanding what courage is, is a good friend of the show, U.S. Army veteran, Green Beret, and representative in the Virginia House of Delegates. You know him, you love him, Mr. Nick Freitas. Nick, it's a blast to have you back on again. It's been too long. Yeah, it has been. Thanks again, brother. I appreciate it. So I, I, I want to get the order right. You're what, you're a, you have, you have a Ranger tab, and you were a Green Beret. I've only met a few people who have both been Ranger qualified and went on to be Special Forces. What, which one did you do first? And so I went through Ranger School first, and and that's one where, I mean, in, in SF we got a lot of Green Berets that that have also gone to Ranger School, and and there's a big difference too. There's guys that actually served in Ranger Battalion. Those guys are, you know, rightfully called Rangers. Um, 
So they went to Ranger school, got Ranger qualified, but they also served within the Ranger regiment. And then there's other people that went through the school and got the Ranger tab. And then, uh, so I never served in Ranger regiment. I served uh, with the 82nd Airborne, 25th Infantry, and then with uh, First Special Forces Group on uh, ODA 193 and 1333. So, um, but yeah, yeah, I went, I went through Ranger school. In fact, I turned 21 in Ranger school. Uh, don't oh, recommend damn. it. not the best place to to spend your 21st birthday but i still felt a lot better than the guy that was 38 going through ranger school so (laughs) oh man uh when when it comes to understanding you know what 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 makes a what makes a man in a hard situation i mean looking at uh the men and women that serve in our armed forces which you and i have both had the honor of serving in uh the, the one thing i did say when people ask me about uh, my time is that, you know, I didn't really do much, but I got the honor of serving and getting to learn with some amazing Americans, men and women who are just absolutely, you know, they, they are standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. Um, you know, when, when you went into the army, it was right out of high school, right? Yeah, I was uh, two weeks. Well, I joined the national guard when I was actually in high school. Um, and then I, I went active duty as soon as I graduated. So about two weeks after graduation, I was on my way to good old Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, for infantry basic and airborne school. I got, I kind of just like, I got, I got like the shiver up my arm when you said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nick, you know, uh, you know, one, it takes, it, it takes a unique type of individual to want to go into service, but you know, to, to be an infantryman and then to choose to, to go on to these different courses and, and volunteer more of yourself. Uh, what, what was that decision? Like, did you go in knowing that you wanted to do all these things or when you kind of got your boots wet, so to speak, was it then one of those paths where it's like, you know, I might try ranger school or I might be a green beret one day. What, what makes that decision happen? because uh it's it's hard and that's an that's an extreme understatement i mean it is i mean i think the i think the attrition rate for ranger school is like 75 85 percent or something like that alone yeah i I think it's yeah when i was going through i think it was around 70 or so but um, no, I knew I wanted to be infantry. I was like, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to join the army, I want to do the, <laughs> I want to do things that you can only do in the army. Um, and, and I love being infantry. Infantry was great. Um, and then when I got there initially, when I, I knew I wanted to be airborne, went to the 82nd, uh, I, I was always a big history buff. So obviously the 82nd has a pretty long and storied history among all the active duty divisions in the military. And so I, I, you know, I liked that. Um, once I got there, um, you know, the different opportunities came up, you know, you got the opportunity to go you know, get your expert infantryman's badge. And I was able to get that. And when you get that as an E2, you know, you kind of automatically, you know, get a promotion to PFC. And then there was an opportunity to go to air assault school uh, when I joined the scout platoon and then a sniper slot came up. So I got to go to sniper school. And, um, you know, it's part of it is wanting to obviously kind of hone your skill set and, uh, I mean, I hate the, I hate the cliched term of, you know, more, more tools in the tool bag, but, um, <laughs> that, that's, that's kind of what it was, right. The, the more, the more school, the more qualifications you got, the more options that were kind of open, you know, what you could do. And, um, Ranger school was, is kind of one of those, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate small unit tactics leadership course. It's about, um, 70 days. I, I went in probably weighing about, I don't know, about 160 pounds came out weighing about 130. <laughs> um, shit. Yeah, it was, it was really, I mean, it, it's a tough school. I mean, you're, you're hungry all the time, you're tired all the time and they really push you to your limits, both mentally and physically, but it was, it was a great course. Um, so some of it was just being competitive and, uh, did it, you know, not wanting, uh, I, I don't like it when something scares me or when I feel like I, I might not be able to do something. And so my natural inclination is to be like, well, screw that. I'm going to do it twice then. You know? So, um, but I, I learned a lot in ranger school and then Going special forces, that was not part of the original plan. Uh, when I first went in the Army, special forces didn't really appeal to me. And uh, for listeners that kind of you know don't know the difference because the media certainly screws it up every time they talk it about, you know, there's, there's the larger umbrella of special operations. And special operations is a lot of things. It's, it's Delta, it's Navy SEALs, it's, uh, you know, Air Force P- PJs uh, and Green Berets, right? But Green Berets are special forces, right? So a lot of times the press will screw up and call Rangers special forces. Now they're special operations, but they're not special forces. Special forces is very, very uniquely green berets. And it's all built around uh, a mission set. There's about seven 
primary mission sets, but the, the two that we're known for the most are unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency. And so your, your typical SF ODA, it's a 12-man team. You know, if you look at the early days of Afghanistan, they dropped off 12-man teams, uh, you know, in the, all over Afghanistan. They linked up with uh, Northern Alliance, basically indigenous forces up there that were fighting the Taliban. And, you know, one 12-man team can be responsible for, you know, advising, training, and, and helping to lead up to a 500-man indigenous battalion. So it's a real force multiplier. But when I first came into the military, I was like, well, I don't know if I want to spend all my time, you know, I fighting alongside indigenous troops. I want to fight alongside other Americans. And as I watched the opening days after 9-11, watching the opening days of Afghanistan and watching what these guys were doing, what a 12-man team was doing. And, you know, you saw that. I actually haven't seen the movie yet, but 12, 12 Strong was all about some of the first. Uh, oh, the one of Chris Hemsworth. Was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some of the first first guys with fifth special forces group that went into Afghanistan, they, you know, they called them the horse soldiers. Um, but it was just this whole idea of, of you know, basically being Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, you got to go in there. <laughs> you, had a, you had a lot of freedom of action. You, you uh, were trusted to do your mission. You got to do a lot of interesting things. And so that that's really motivated me. I knew I wanted to get involved. Uh, once once 9-11 happened, uh, you know, most of us wanted to be wherever the, the fighting was because, quite frankly, we were pissed. And um, I saw the sort of work Special Forces were doing. I said, yeah, I want to do that. And um, so – Went to Special Forces Selection, then went through the qualification course, ended up with First Special Forces Group, and uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved being a Green Beret, some of the finest people uh, I will ever know in my life. And did a couple tours, one in 2000, two, two in Iraq, one in 2006, and one in 2008. I, uh, I, I think the unique thing about the military is that it's, it's the great equalizer. You get to serve with people from all around the country, from every walk of life. But the one thing that really... Uh, became apparent to me was, you know, you've always got your guys who look like they're the absolute badass. Then you've got the guys and you look at them and you're like, you're, you're 20 pounds wet. Uh, the, The one thing that always, you know, became clear to me was you really get to know a person when they're wet, tired, hungry, covered in mud and being told to move faster. Um, yeah. when, when you go back to, you know, when, when you were 20, just going through uh, ranger school, what, what was going through your head as you just arrived? So <laughs> it was one of those things where I'd kind of made up my mind that, um, you know, however long it takes, I'm going to make it through this. Um, I'm going to graduate this course because you do have, you know, the highest attrition rate is the people that get recycled and, and they have to go through a particular phase again. Um, but I, I kind of made up my mind, like, look, whatever it takes, I'm, I'm not going home without my Ranger tab. Um, but, I, you know, I was intimidated. I was a private first class at the time. And uh, most of the people going through Ranger school were uh, specialists, E4 specialists or, or sergeants, uh, depending on where they came from. The only guys that were PFCs that were going through Ranger school were, were from Ranger Regiment um, and maybe a few from the 82nd. But uh, so, yeah, it was, I mean, it was intimidating. You're there with a lot of guys that are, are more senior than you are, um, but you're all getting graded on your ability to lead combat patrols. Um, and just because, you know, you're junior rank, I mean, they, they might, they might put some of the more senior guys in a position where they have the ability to kind of mentor as a, as a student, but um, ultimately you're either going to make it or you're not. And, and what I found at Ranger School, um, I mean, like pretty much everything else in life, it's really about making a choice. Um, I mean, there's certainly things that can happen that's beyond your control. You can get hurt um, and and have to go home or whatnot. But most of the people that fail out of ranger school, I I would argue don't do it because they lack the mental capacity uh, to be able to lead a combat patrol under difficult circumstances. They mentally, they beat themselves um, because they make it easy to quit. It's not as if they're, it's not as if the ranger instructors are going, they're going, Hey buddy, come on, you can make it right. Nobody's doing that crap. Um, they, they want you to quit. If you're the sort of person that's going to quit, then they're going to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. And so you'd be sitting there starving to death, really hungry, just exhausted. And, you know, maybe you just failed a patrol and that ranger instructor's coming up going, Hey man, do you just want to get on the truck? This isn't for everybody. You know, we got donuts and coffee in the truck, man. You know, Hey, look, you don't got to prove yourself. I mean, mentally screwing with you. Right. Um, but again, it's all about making a choice. So yeah, when I showed up, that was, I was intimidated. I was like, Oh, you know, crap, this is going to suck. <laughs> and, uh, but by the same token, just, there's no way I'm coming back home to my wife without a ranger tab. <laughs> well, 
What, what were some of the unique challenges of things that you didn't expect as you were going through it? What, what I've always heard from people is that there's always one thing that they were a little bit nervous about, and then they realized, no, there was something else that they didn't see coming that, you know, kind of threw them a curveball. What were some of the unique challenges that you, you know, encountered? Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the whole thing was pretty difficult. <laughs> um, the, the big, I, I would say that, um, the two things that most people talk about, it's, it's interesting. Everybody goes to ranger school. Everyone's tired. Everyone's hungry, but some people are more tired and some people are more hungry, right? You, you kind of, that's, that's one of the things you will learn right off the bat is, you know, what, what do you, between those two things, right. You know, as far as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. Hunger, you know, sleep, you need sleep and you need food. Um, you know, which is going to affect you the most. And, and that, that was interesting because I, I definitely, I mean, the, the sleep deprivation just kicked my butt at times where, I mean, you're sitting there and I, I used to, you know, in the MREs, I mean, you know, this, they have those little, that horrible instant coffee. Um, I, I always stay, I always stayed away from that shit. Oh yeah. Well, like if I, I if I'm going to be constipated, I don't want to be constipated and highly caffeinated. So I would go for the gum. But the thing is like, you have people that get addicted to the super caffeine gum. So yeah. I, I would, you know, I would break it in half and I might share it with a battle buddy or something. I, I, I always stay away from the coffee. Oh man, I would take that coffee because I, I could I didn't dip. Uh, and I was through one of the last classes where you could still dip in ranger school. Um, but I, I had my, I would take those instant coffee packs and I would put it in my lip like a dip um, just to try to stay awake as you're, you know, you're sitting there, you know, in the prone position, pulling security. Um, <laughs> so it was just things like that where you kind of realize how certain things just really uh, really eat at you. And then obviously there's a lot of pressure, not only when you're on patrol. I mean, obviously when you're on patrol and you're the one leading the patrol and getting graded, uh, I mean, you're sitting there, there's just this huge, in this intense feeling of wanting to second guess yourself and getting to a point where it's like, well, screw it. We got to, I got to make a decision. This is what we're doing. And again, when you make that decision, you know, your RI comes, your Ranger instructor, your RI comes up and like, where are you on the map or what are you doing? You know, Ranger, what are you doing? I'm doing this. You sure? Yes, I am. All right, go for it. Right, you know. So again, it's, it's I, I would I would rather down. have somebody kick me in the face and like yeah. say terrible things about my mother than make me doubt myself. Like, are you sure? Is that the one you want? Because I could hear voices in my head for, by going through land nav and in certain courses, oh, yeah. and it was like, uh, are you sure about that? And it's like that. That is what killed me. Insult me all you want. Yell at me all you want. Make me question something I feel certain about, and that that's like a knife to the gut. Oh yeah, they were big. I mean, that's the famous thing, right? What are you going to do, LT? Right? <laughs> that was their that was their thing. If you're the you lost LT, yeah. What are you going to do, LT? You <laughs> lost, and you're sitting here and you're second guessing yourself and you're wondering like crap, you know. And and but so yeah, that so again, that's what I say. Like they 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 really did a good job of creating a comprehensive experience of suck. <laughs> uh, but by the same token, you you learn a lot not just about patrolling, but the circumstances in which you can operate. And I think that's really important because. You know, again, I did I did two combat tours in Iraq, and look, some some guys had I, I don't I don't think my experience in combat was all that difficult. I, I'm I'm always big on I, I never want to portray this idea that you know I was running from house to house getting shot at. That just wasn't my experience. I mean, we obviously we we had our moments, and I went on a lot of combat patrols, and we rolled up a lot of bad guys. Um, but there were some guys that had it really hard. Um, but I, I would say that from my experience, I was never as tired. Uh, in combat, I was never as hungry in combat. I was never as, you know, in a lot of ways stressed in combat as I was in ranger school. <laughs> um, and, and again, other people will say, well, that's crap. You must've had it easy. And, and yeah, compared to some of the guys that, you know, in Fallujah in certain times or Mosul or guys over in Afghanistan at certain moments, um, it was tough, but yeah, the, the whole point was they were trying to create an environment where you were going to be pushed to your physical and mental limits. And, and what were you going to do in that moment? Were you just going to give up or were you going to continue to drive on? And I, I think there's a lot of value in that. You learn a lot about yourself because it, again, one thing, one thing I found, I was, I was just speaking to a, I was speaking to a young men's group. It was a football team. Uh, so like middle schoolers and then high schoolers. And uh, one of the things I told them was, I'm like, look, guys, you know, with all this talk about toxic masculinity and all this other you know, stuff that's going out there. I said, there's one thing I want you to understand about, you know, you as a young man, you're supposed to be dangerous, right? This whole crap that men being dangerous is a problem. Well, no, it's being dangerous is a part of our nature. Being dangerous is a part of our nature. The question is, what are you dangerous toward? 
Because yeah, if you're dangerous toward innocent people, if you're dangerous toward women, if you're dangerous toward children, if you're dangerous, then yeah, you're you're a punk, right? That's not masculine. You're you're just a problem. But if you're dangerous toward the people that would hurt or exploit the innocent or hurt or exploit your wife or your children, if you're dangerous toward them, that's exactly what you want to be. And there's a million excuses to be something other than what you're supposed to be. And, and the big thing that I think we've all got to kind of make a decision back to your early point about you know being men is you have the choice. Like I get so tired of this, this mentality nowadays where it's, well, it's how you were brought up or your, you know, your, your parents split up or your mom didn't breastfeed you long enough or whatever you want to come up with, right? There's a million different excuses you can come up with on why you've chosen to be something other than you are or, or choo- choose to do the wrong thing at the time when everybody was depending on you to do the right thing. Um, but that's the beauty of it. It is, it is your choice. So, you know, decide what you're going to do before you get into a bad situation. Decide what you're going to do before you get into a dangerous situation. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you bring up something which is so important, which is, you know, the the state of manhood right now. And I mean, I remember right out of right, right out of high school, I went to uh, uh, they, they called it basic camp. It wasn't basic training. It was like I think it was the leaders training course at the time. So I did I did a two year commissioning program at Marion Military Institute. So I I did my I did basically the what you need to get done at basic training in a condensed period because then immediately after that I got like two days off and then I was shipped off to go matriculate into the Corps of Cadets at the school. And uh, going from that to you know the core where I'm dealing with people who aren't necessarily there to go into the military. So you've got some folks where it's like you're you're not you're nothing like the people I just dealt with. You know that that was another couple of months. And I mean, what what really kind of shocked me was that um, you know they, what, what I saw were a lot of guys trying to compete with each other. The guys that were like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do Ranger Challenge and I'm gonna make uh, the drill team and I'm gonna be the you know the battalion commander and all this stuff. Like it's a very it's a very machismo environment because that's just how it is and that's. That was part of why I wanted to go there. It was a place where I could toughen up and where I could grow and develop as a young man. And what, what I remember were the guys who I think by today's standards, they would be described as like toxically masculine. They, they were they were just assholes at the end of the day because for every yeah. first year cadet in the military science three program. So, you, you know, you were basically in your junior year or to see your freshman year. We were all assigned kind of a mentor. And my mentor was, uh, you know, Cadet Sergeant Major Tyler Mack. Mauser. The guy had already gone to airborne school and he had already gone to air assault school. And he, he, he was basically what happens if you get like cigarettes, creatine and the movie Predator turned into a person. Like he, gotcha. yeah, he kind of scared the shit out of me, but he was, he was, he was honestly like, I would not have made it through that school without his, his mentorship, because even yeah. though he, he could be an intimidating guy and he could get in your face and make you feel like an inch tall, like he, he was he he knew how to handle people and he knew where to meet people where they are and get them over the next hump. And I think those well, are the type of people you need, people that can be tough, but they know how to be a leader. Well, and I, and I think that, you know, I forget who, God, was it was a Jordan Peterson or Douglas Murray. It might've been Douglas Murray. Which one he sounded the about- most like Kermit the Frog? <laughs> he was, well, he said something interesting. He was talking about, you know, before you take a critique from someone, you should probably ask yourself, is this person on my side, right? Does this person actually want the best, you know, for me? Do they want me to succeed or is this person essentially just being a punk, right? And, and that's where, I mean, that's where you get into some of the differences, right? The, I had guys in the military that I served with that they could run fast, they could shoot straight, they could lift a lot of weights, but I don't want to go to combat with them um, because ultimately on some, on some level, it was about them. The vast majority of the people I served with, and certainly everybody on my, my ODA that I served with, I mean, these were guys that could also run fast, shoot straight, and lift a lot of weight. Um, but they, we were also sort of people that would fight over who got to be the first one through the door. And, and part of it was because we wanted to be that guy. But another part of it was, too, is nobody wanted to have to escort their buddy's remains home. And um, everybody, like, I, I got buddies from my team that, I, I could call them up at two o'clock in the morning and say, I need you here with a shovel, some lime and no questions asked. Right. <laughs> and they, and they, they would be there. Right. And I, and I'd be there for them. And, and I think it goes back to what you're saying, right. There, there's nothing wrong with, uh, there's nothing wrong with being intense, being competitive. Um, and, and likewise, not necessarily being as intense. It, it's more about, you know, what, what do you, what motivates you? 
right? What are you fighting for? And there's a lot of different ways to fight for something. In the military, obviously, it's it's very physical in many respects. But it, it, you know, if you're not the sort if you're not the sort of guy that's necessarily you know you know is physical or whatnot, that doesn't mean um, you still don't have an obligation to fight for something that you believe in. You might do it a different way. Um, but it, but it really you got to ask that question, especially when you're you're competing with someone or um, when you're in a leadership role. Is this someone that is is trying to is trying to make you the best version of who you can possibly be? Or is this someone that, that basically gets off on, on, you know, pushing down other people? Um, and, and you do, you, I mean, you, you see the difference really quick. So kind of, kind of rewinding a little bit, um, you, you, you get your ranger tab and then uh, a time goes by and you eventually want to go to special forces selection, um, you know, to kind of encapsulate what were, what were some of the differences between that and ranger school? Because I can imagine oh. you've already qualified as a ranger. And now you're going through this, you're a little bit more prepared than some of the other folks, but at the same time, it's, yeah. it's a new challenge still. No, it, well, it is. I mean, it's, it's two very, very different things, right? Ranger, ranger school is a 70 day program, which is all about teaching small unit tactics, leadership, Right, how, how to conduct uh, an ambush, a raid, a recon, you know, how, how to lead troops in a difficult situation. Um, that, that's what Ranger School is all about, small unit tactics. It's, it's making that, those good, you know, platoon leaders, platoon sergeants, squad leaders, you know, team leaders, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> special Forces qualification. So Special Forces selection is like the three-week course you go to, and they weed a lot of people out there. You do a lot of land nav. You do some other stuff. It, the it, selection's changed um, you know, before I went through, after I went through the whole deal. So there's, there's other things now, but three weeks, they weed a lot of people out of selection, but if you make it through that, then you go through the qualification course. Well, the qualification course can last anywhere from like a year to gosh, dang, I think close to two years. If you're an 18 Delta, which is a special forces medic. And it's not something you, you don't get your special forces tab and then go back to your unit. Um, you get your special board and you join special forces, right? So you can go to ranger school without ever going to the ranger regiment. If you go to special forces qualification course and you graduate, you are going to a special forces group. Um, so it, it's a lot of it is about, you know, you have your small unit tactics training, you have your unconventional warfare training, you have language training. I went through six months of Thai. Uh, you have survival, evasion, resistance, and escape, SEER training. Um, you have your uh, MOS training. So I, I went through as an 18, my first MOS was an 18 Bravo. I was a weapons sergeant. So you spent several weeks learning about, you know, pistols, small arms, machine guns, mortars, you know, you learn how to do pretty much anything you can do with a, with a weapon system, foreign weapon systems. Because again, the whole idea of SF is you're a 12 man team out of the middle of nowhere. It's not like, you know, in some situations you, you can be where, where you, you've got a Ford operating base and you call for help in other situations, dude, it's you, right? The medic is the doctor, right? The, your 18 echo is your communications. Your, your Bravo is your trainer and your weapons guy. If something breaks, you fix it. Right. So they, they put a lot of intensity in, in getting you up to be a specialist within your particular field, within your particular responsibility on the team. Um, you know, and, and again, it, it's all about, too, creating people that are going to be – in SF, you're either fighting insurgents or you are the insurgent, right? You're, you're, so you're in, – in, in uh, early Afghanistan, that was unconventional warfare. You had Green Berets working with indigenous forces to overthrow the current government led by the Taliban in Afghanistan. In Iraq, we were doing more counterinsurgency. We were working with the local – after we had overthrown the government, we were working with the local uh, – with the government, with uh, local forces in order to get the terrorist insurgents that were operating. So th that's, that's the big difference. One is giving you a particular skill set in small unit tactics. The other is about um, kind of reorienting and preparing you to go into a very, very unique and specialized environment within the military. Um, one, one, one question I kind of have about that. So, so you've done both of those things. I had a, I, I had a sergeant first class my uh, at my first unit in Alabama. Uh, he, he was he was a great mentor, and you know I I was able to seek guidance from him when I needed it, and he was able to provide guidance when I didn't really always want to accept it. Sometimes that he was he was a good leader, and the one thing that I really took from him is that you know mindset is key. 
um, your your mind, you know, you're, you're a human. You're supposed to go into fight or flight mode, but you have ultimately the the choice of the decision you're going to make. Mindset is key. As you've gone through both of those. Um, what, what were some of the things that you developed in your own thought process when you were dealing in, with situations where you're like, I, I could be anywhere else. I don't have to put up yeah. with this or this feels like it's lasting forever. What, what the hell is going to happen next? Well, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, some of it, it, it goes back to the whole idea of choice, right? Um, this is why I emphasize this so much. Um, so, I mean, it, First of all, I mean, my faith is really important to me, right? So I'm I'm a Christian, and, and there's certain rules I have to live by, right? And I've made that choice, and so everything I do, I'm accountable not only to the person on my left or right, not just my family. I'm a, I'm accountable to my Maker, um, and I take that very seriously. And and I, I was raised in a family where there was a lot of emphasis on honor, and I and it's funny because you don't actually hear the word honor being said much. Um, I felt like when I was growing up and I was in the military, we talked about it more than, than society in general does. And certainly more than you see on TV right now. Um, and well, the I only time you hear it is when somebody's pointing a finger at somebody else and they're saying, you have no honor. It, it's like, yeah. it's one of those things that you can only conveniently throw up when you're, you know, trying to, trying to throw the dishonor card at another person. Well, yeah. And, and it's, what is it? Robbie Zacharias used to say, you know, um, hypocrisy is the compliment that vice pays to virtue. Um, but, uh, but I think, um, yeah, I, it's one of those things where you, you, you make up in your mind as you go through a number of situations and, and it's not just, so in ranger school, right. Um, you could probably get away with, I mean, you might be able to get away with stealing food or you might be able to get away with, um, you know, dozing off or a number of other things. But if you do, you need to understand that there, there's, you know, there's consequence. Someone else is going to suffer as a result of your decision. And, um, and the same thing with combat. And there, there's one story in particular where I, I can, you know, again, I went on a lot of combat operations. There was only one where I thought, yeah, there's a really good chance I'm about to die right now. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking to myself, like, is there any better way to go about this particular situation right like we we had taken fire we had two guys down um we had cleared all the houses around we had cornered off the area we were searching for this guy um and and there's a little hidey hole and there's one way in and one way out and and at this point it's like the guy's either dead or he's sitting there waiting for somebody for some jackass to jump in the front of his you know (laughs) of his uh ak and 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 it was interesting because in that moment there there were other options open uh, but none of those options were honorable. And I distinctly remember a story my father had told me about when he was in the LAPD, LAPD um, about basically saying, you know, look, we're the ones they call. Um, and, and at some point, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you might be able to pawn it off to somebody else, but it's your damn responsibility. And so what can you live with? Right. Can you can you go back if someone else gets hurt because you refuse to do your job? Can you live with that? And, you know, I, I had decided a long time before I was in that situation, there was no way I could. And I, I think that's why, again, I emphasize choice so much. Like you, you make up in your mind what you believe, make up in your mind what it is that you're going to fight for, what is true, what is noble, what is, what is worth sacrificing for. And if, you, and if you've made up your mind ahead of time and you've, and you've done something to train yourself to do the right thing in a difficult situation, because it starts off small, right? Yeah, you can always talk about combat situations as, oh my gosh, that was so you know incredible. Okay, but yeah, it starts with little decisions that you make in your everyday life. And if, and if you have already decided that you are going to be an honorable person, regardless of the personal cost to you, and you make those appropriate decisions when it's little, then it becomes significantly more easy to make them when it's difficult. But um, there, there's nothing more depressing than watching somebody, watching a grown man sit there and grovel or equivocate um, or just totally drop the ball due to pressure because not only had they not made up in their mind that they were going to do the right thing in a difficult situation, they'd essentially made up their mind that they were going to do whatever it took for them to survive in that particular moment. And there's just nothing more pathetic there was a 
there's a story I remember my father telling me. My my father served 15 months in in Iraq during the surge from 06 to 07. He was only supposed to be there for uh, a, a year, and they they extended uh, first cap oh, so by by three we were, months. We were there. We were there the same time. Oh, really? Yeah, he, I was there uh, 06. Yeah, he was there at Taji. Oh, I was in Beijing in 06, and I was at Taji in 08. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you, you, yeah. yeah, I mean that time that, that was when the Iraq war was at the point where it's like, this is either going to go really, really bad for us or it's going to go really, really right. Either way, this is the, this is the heat of the war. Um, yeah. you know, a lot of Americans, I think, you know, after the invasion in Oh three, I mean, there were a lot of stories there, you know, people kind of knew it was still going on, but between Oh four, Oh five, it had kind of died down. So when the surge happened, I mean, I remember how controversial the surge was. I don't think I really understood yeah. it until years later, the, the, what, what the surge really meant for us combat operations in Iraq. But, uh, I, I mean, one story, my father, told me um was that he was he was a he was a major at the time yeah he was he was he was a major at the time and he was dealing with this uh first lieutenant that was in charge of basically planning a convoy uh through baghdad that you know basically they had just been getting attacked by not just ieds but there were these guys that were constantly jumping around with rpgs and they they just seemed to always know where it was gonna be and, you know, this this first lieutenant came up with a plan based off the intel that he was provided. And long story short, it's it's the day of the the convoy and my dad is checking his stuff and he's like, you, you, you missed a bunch of stuff. We need to fix it. And, and the first lieutenant goes, no, no, it's good. And my, da- and my dad's like, no, you, you've got to fix it. Let's look at this other stuff. And he's like, I know what I'm doing. And uh, long story short, my my dad had like a come to Jesus moment with this first lieutenant and uh, the, the guy basically, he, he basically quit. And like an hour before everyone is supposed to go out, all his men go out, they literally have to replace him with, with a, with another lieutenant. And luckily, Holy crap. yeah, like that is, that is not what you want to do an hour before everyone's about to go outside the wire. So, you know, luckily, my father and a whole bunch of other majors and, and people in his team, they're, they're able to quickly get this guy up to pace. And, you know, nobody, nobody died that day. And that, and that really stuck with my father because that was one of the first trips through this, through this route that they had distinguished where for the first time in like weeks, not a single person died. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this was at the point where uh, we didn't have Facebook, folks. We didn't have Skype. We didn't have any of these other things. If I wanted to hear from my father, it was either an email once a month or a handwritten letter. And each time uh, an American serviceman would die, they would go into a they, – they would basically hunker down, close off all communications. So yeah. there were days where I was expecting to get a phone call from my father and I was really excited. But somebody died that morning and now I'm not going to hear from him for at least seven more days. And uh, I, I, I remember that. I think, uh, you know, the Internet's amazing. When my dad went to Afghanistan, we could still talk pretty regularly despite the time distance. But that 15 months in Iraq was uh, was difficult. I mean, he, he served in Afghanistan in, in 2011, 2012. Afghanistan was different. But, um, you know, he, he, he went there and he came back and it was, it was okay. Um, but Iraq was one of those significantly life-changing moments for my father. And I don't, I don't want to get into too much into this part, but uh, my dad wrote some, arm, wrote some articles for a few different magazines talking about um, you know, his time there and advice for young officers and for uh, NCOs who are in leadership positions. And one of the things he told people was keep a journal. Like right, and he actually kept a journal the entire time he was he was in Iraq, and I I'm, I I have not read it, but what he did tell me was you know I read the first couple pages when I got back, and I read the last couple pages, and war war changes you, um you know I I think there's nothing there, there's nothing more terrifying on earth than being in a state of war, especially when you have to go fight it. Um, when you were preparing to go to Iraq the first time, what, what was it like when you heard that you were, you were going to deploy? Um, well, I mean, I've been wanting to deploy pretty much since 9-11. Um, when I was in the 25th Infantry in Hawaii, I told Tina, my wife, um, and we've been married for about four years at that point, three, three and a half, four years. And um, I told her, I said, well, if this unit doesn't deploy in six months, I'm volunteering for Special Forces, <laughs> right? Of course, she was thrilled <laughs> to hear that. Um, 
And so when I finally got over there and I was sick, I was a little disappointed. It took so long. When I first showed up to first special forces group in summer of 2004, I got assigned to third battalion. Second battalion was deployed to Afghanistan, but I hadn't been signed in yet. So I went over to the battalion sergeant major who later ended up becoming the group sergeant major. And I said, Hey, Sergeant major, you know, Sergeant, uh, you know, Staff Sergeant Nick Freitas reporting. Uh, just, I understand second battalion is deployed to Afghanistan. Um, he goes, have you been assigned yet? I said, my understanding is I've been assigned to third battalion, but nothing's finalized yet. And he goes, what are you? I said, I'm an 18 Bravo. Well, because 18 deltas are always in high demand, right? It's a much more strenuous course. He goes, well, if you're a delta, maybe, but a Bravo, I'm sorry, man, it ain't going to work out. So I had, I had to wait until, um, gosh, what was it like early 2006, um, to deploy. So like I, I had wanted to deploy, but by the time I did, you know, at, at that point, I, I think, uh, gosh, I had just had my second, you know, Tina just had her second child. Um, and so it, it was one of those things where, I mean, you're, you're excited that you're, you know, you're going over there with your guys, you've trained to do this. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting too, because I've got all kinds of problems with us foreign policy, right? I, I, I have not, I'm not a big fan of us foreign policy, but that doesn't mean there aren't times to go and stop evil people from doing evil things. Right. I've, I've always come what, to it. Yeah. I mean, I've always come to it this way. Yeah. Like for, you know, I, I identify as a libertarian and I, I don't yeah. tell people I'm anti-war. Um, mm-hmm. and that, that bothers a lot of libertarians and they're like, you're not, anti-war. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm pro peace. I'm pro peace. But yeah. Sometimes yeah. you need to spit in your hands, raise the black flag, and then go across the Delaware and go slit some throats at night for freedom. Well, and, and I and I think it's you know, and again, here's the garbage part, right? It's this whole <laughs> idea of you're you're not you're not anti-war. Like, hey, do you believe in the Second Amendment? Yeah. Why? Well, because I want to be able to. Oh, so sometimes violence is necessary. Yes, and sometimes <laughs> corporate violence is necessary, right? So it's you know, give me a break. And and I I tried to explain it to one guy once. It's like, look. You don't appreciate evil um, when you look at it. You appreciate evil when it looks back. And when you see some of the people that we were we were going, some of the people that we stopped, these were people that were putting suicide vests on small children and sending them in a crowded marketplace. Now, if you want to make the argument that U.S. foreign policy contributed to what, okay, fine, make your argument. We can have that argument. That's fine. Again, I, I'm no big fan of U.S. foreign policy in, in many respects. But by the same token, what, what we were doing we were stopping really bad people from doing really bad things. And, and I'm sorry, you don't get, you might be mad at American foreign policy. You might have a legitimate reason to be mad at American foreign policy. The moment you put a suicide vest onto a small child and walk them into a crowded area to blow them up, screw you, right? There, there is nothing in U.S. foreign policy that justifies that sort of behavior. And there's nothing about what we did in order to stop people like that that's going to make me feel bad or cause me to lose any sleep. And so... You know, gosh, I forgot where we were going with all this, but it it, it, it just again it, it goes back to that whole idea of um, you know I I wanted to deploy, but yeah, there was a lot of um, when I got back from my second tour, I, I was I was a little bit more bitter, um, in part because I, I started to see what was happening on the on the political level back at home. Where this, I saw this is in 08, right? Yeah, yeah. So I got I got back home and uh, well, I actually got back home. In oh, you got you got home when Obama was gonna end it all. Yeah, <laughs> he, he got a, he, yeah, exactly. He got he got elected and he got elected in two thousand eight. So I was overseas when he got elected, and but it wasn't that. It wasn't, it wasn't Barack Obama that made me. It was the fact that I was watching people argue for this idea of we're going to fundamentally change the country. I'm like. Look, there's there's a lot of things that our government has, has done wrong and things like that. But as far as the fundamentals of the country, no, the fundamentals are what's right. Individual liberty, private property rights, self-determination, you know, constitutional checks on government power. These are the fundamentals, right? These are all good things. Um, it, it's our job to live up to them, and we certainly haven't always done that. But there was a part of me that was really bitter at this idea that I had missed all this time with my family um, fighting for something I believed in. Uh, fighting alongside people that I admired and respected, losing some of the people that um, I, I knew in the military, only to have the American people essentially say, you know, essentially, well, the, I, I don't know, like, this individual liberty stuff is hard. You know, we, we want the government to take care of us. And, I, and again, from my perspective, it was like, holy hell, you know, one of the things I, I respected so much about this country, the more I traveled other places, 
was that what we have here is special and unique because there, there's just just ingrained sense in America. And, and I realize that maybe not everybody feels this way, but I, I do think it's there that here we we do get to control our own lives. And I, and I think so many people just automatically assume that the sort of prosperity or the sort of, even, even if you're poor in this country, right, the, the, the sort of prosperity or peace or upward economic mobility, uh, the, the ability to succeed regardless of who your parents were or where you started off in life, that is not common. Like, that's not the norm throughout time or, or space. And, and yet we have it here. And, and it is worth fighting for and it's worth defending and, and no, we're not, we don't perfectly apply it, but we've, we've certainly, over the last 230 plus years, we've certainly fought to expand it and to, and to perfect it. I mean, that's why it's called, that's why it's in order to form a more perfect union. We realize perfection is not possible this side of heaven, but hot damn, you look at where we were and where we've come from and just the revolutionary ideas that were enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the philosophy that was built around this country. Um, Honestly, when I got back from my second tour, I was a little bit bitter um, because I always saw that as that's ultimately what I'm fighting for. Right? It's not a particular U.S. foreign policy that ultimately what I'm fighting for is, is are those principles enshrined in these documents and, and an understanding about what formed our country. So we, we've only got a few minutes left. I want to kind of jump into these two questions to wrap up. Um, you know, ma- many years have passed and I mean, you went from wearing a uniform to putting on a suit and tie to go be an elected official here in Virginia. If you could go all the way back to like, you know, 19 year old Nick before he's about to go on these, you know, life changing adventures. What, what were some of the, what were some of the pieces of advice you would give your young self? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, there, there was probably the most transformational point in my life. Um, it didn't come, you know, in ranger school or, or special force qualification course or even in combat. It actually came in the 18 Fox course, which is a special forces intelligence sergeants course. And it's because we, we were debating certain issues and there was another guy there that I respected. Right? A good Green Beret, you know, man's man type of guy. And a strong Christian, really strong in his faith, much stronger than I was at that point. And I remember him coming up to me at one point and saying, you know, you need, you need to start listening to like Robbie Zacharias. You need, you need to start. And the reason why I say that was transformational was because I had always been, I had always grown up in, a, in, in my faith and right. And I always had a, a commitment to it, but there, there was always something kind of missing. Right. Because for me, it, it's important for me to understand things. Right. It, like I, I understand the emotional component of understanding something and experiencing something, but I need to understand it on an intellectual level. I need to be able to defend it in order to really believe it's true. And that one conversation with that guy and, and starting to really deep in and challenge my own presuppositions um, really turned things around in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and I shouldn't say turn things around as if everything was going downhill. It wasn't like that. It was more of just, it reoriented what was important to me. And this is the part where I think more and more, as we look at American society and what, what people are looking for, and you have all this talk about justice, um, it's pretty hard to have justice without an understanding of truth. And the more I was able to dig in and more I was able to understand on an intellectual level, you know, my, my faith and why it was important, why it was true and why it was worth defending and why it, it was the root of all these other things that I believed in, right? Individual liberty. Like why, why do we believe in individual liberty? Why can't government, why can't wise politicians essentially run our lives for us? Well, it's pretty simple. It's because God made you free. You, you have a right to self-determination. You have a right to pursue happiness and meaning and purpose in this life. Because the one entity that could have created you in such a way to where you had none of those options chose not to. So how dare any person, any politician arrogantly assume that sort of power for themselves? You know, what, why do we believe in, in private property rights? Well, because, again, if, if you have the right to be able to pursue happiness, meaning and purpose, then, of course, you have the right to be able to pursue those things, to be able to use your skills, your talents, your creativity um, to, to be able to build and create and to exchange and trade with other people. Of course you have that, right? These things are fundamental. 
And I, and I think that's, that's so important right now is I, I see so many people walking around with kind of a loose idea of what they believe. And the reason why it's, it's constantly shaken from, from one spectrum to the next is because it's not rooted in anything. And, and that moment was critical to me because it, it helped me root everything into say, I mean, it, for me, it answered the epistemological question. I know we don't got time to go into epistemology. If you don't know it, just look it up. But, <laughs> you know, the, the whole, how do you know what you know, right? That in layman's terms, that's epistemology. And so understanding why I believed what I believed, understanding why I thought it was true and being willing to, to fight for it, to believe in something bigger than myself. And I know that sounds cliche. Uh, but it's true. And, and, you know, again, it's one of the reasons why I think Jordan Peterson is so popular right now is he's really tapped into something is that more and more what you see is it's not that people are just searching for, you know, that arbitrary, you know, the freaking Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Oh, self-actualization. Oh, you know, food, sex, shelter, cash. You know, no, people are looking for meaning and purpose. Um, and that's, you know, again, that little conversation, 2007 Special Forces course, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I can take you right back to it where I realized like, you know what, that was a, that was a, that was a transformational point. And so I would go back to my younger self starting all this out, right. As I, and I got married at 19 and I, I would have reminded myself that you were taking on enormous amounts of responsibility, not just as an adult, you're taking on the responsibilities of being a husband. You were taking on the responsibilities of being a soldier. You think, you know what you believe, but can you really defend it? Can you really explain it? And you need to you need to dive in. So I, I wish I would have had the conversation I had in 2007 back in 1998. Uh, but hey, I'm I'm grateful that I had it when I had it. I I think that's the absolutely perfect place to kind of wrap things up. Nick, thank you so much for your time. People want to you know follow you online, keep up with everything else. How could they do so? Sure. So uh, obviously we're on gosh every every social media platform out there. So we're on Facebook, Twitter, Parlor. Um, we, we encourage you to kind of join and follow us there. We've also got a podcast website that's up. Pitch it. Making the, what's that? Pitch it. Where, where, where can they find it? <laughs> oh, oh, that's what I was going to say. It's called Making the Argument. Um, if, you, if you just type in Making the Argument, if you Google Making the Argument, it'll come up on YouTube, come up on our website. But um, yeah, we Making the Argument is all about taking very, various issues that we face, whether it be political, philosophical, economic, social, and kind of making the argument for you know, liberty, making the argument for giving people more choice and giving more control over their own lives. And so those are the various ways that you can kind of keep track with us. And then hopefully I'll be back on your podcast again, Remzo. I mean, oh, anytime. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little hurt. It's been what, like two years, three? No, it's been longer than that. It's been a minute. Oh my I, 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 had, I had some, I had some job changes, you know, life hit me, worked at GameStop, met some strippers, you know, life, life got interesting. <laughs> Now you've done it. I'll tell you what, though, you've done it. You've done a great job, not with the strippers, but with. The- <laughs> <laughs> hey, they are great negotiators. Yeah. You know what? You don't know. You don't know how your negotiating skills are until you're selling Chinese makeup to strippers in downtown DC. That will teach wow. you a lot about yourself. I'll tell you what. Yeah, that's hey. Yeah, respect. No, really, really proud. Really proud of the work you've done. I appreciate it, man. Nick, thank you so much for your time. We, we all greatly appreciate it. No, thank you. Take care. Check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.